thank you for joining me today. We can't turn on our news without seeing the terrible scenes of war and conflict. And they're not just in the Ukraine, but right around the world. The news media moves on at a time of crisis to the next crisis. But the former one doesn't just disappear. Currently, there are about 40 wars, although some nations won't talk of them as wars, but they will talk of them just as conflicts or seeking to bring peace, won't they? The question is, why war? And does God approve of war by allowing it? And how do we cope with all the fears and the insecurities such terrible events cause? Watching little children caught up in this is heartbreaking. Seeing mothers leaving their homes for they know not what while elderly people are unable to go, plus the loss of life. This is worse than horrific. I am very conscious that this is not an academic topic for many people. And I certainly don't want to be insensitive to anyone caught up in it. Let's pray for peace and try to work out how we can help people caught up in such devastating conflicts. In my location, there are places where provisions can be dropped off to help support in some way the many refugees. I've been in war zones. The difference was I knew my chances of getting home were very high. That's the tragedy for the millions caught up in this conflict, not of their making. I won't be answering all your questions, even if I have that ability, which I just don't. There isn't the time for that. And anyway, there is a long history behind what is happening. However, I do want us to try and get a handle on why war. And does God approve of war? And most importantly, how do we cope at such times? What can we do? Fear is often the outcome, and understandably so. How it, is it possible to find peace at such times, particularly when this topic is personal? I listened to a young mother, now a refugee in Poland, saying... One day I was planning a house extension, the next I don't know if I will have a house to return to. A Russian play started before the stage curtains drew back. A row of soldiers walked into a box on one side of the theatre and another side opposite them and behind each row was a chaplain. The soldiers lifted their rifles at each other and started firing blanks. At the same time, the two chaplains started praying that their side would win. And then the stage curtains drew back and there were angels listening to the chaplains and confused about what to do. It was anti-religious propaganda, of course. But this is a big question, and it's never more important than right now. 
Is an anti-war mood nearer to Christianity or further from it? People say the church should lead a movement against war. Is that the right thing to say? Now, of course, war is not new. Our Bible covers 1400 years, so we would expect a lot of material about war. And 313 wars are mentioned in the Bible, which gives us enough to go on to know what God thinks. Let's start with the Old Testament. And war started early as the result of sin. Take the first family. There was a war between two brothers and one killed the other. In that same chapter, we hear about a man called Lamech who discovered how to forge metal. The immediate result was he made weapons of warfare. And Lamech cried to his wife, I can now kill 70 for one injury. So do you see how it begins early on? And then if you cast your eye through the rest of Genesis, it's full of tribal wars. You move on, the books of Exodus and Joshua are full of wars. But there are five things that the Old Testament tells us about God's attitude. Number one, God sometimes told people to go to war. It was a religious business for Israel. Before a war, they found a prophet and inquired of the Lord, should we fight or not? And if God said, go, they always won. If God said, don't go, and they went, they lost. Britain had war not so long ago. I was born during that war, the Second World War. And there were days of prayer where churches were packed, so I'm told. It's amazing what will bring people to God temporarily. But we never had a national day of prayer before war was declared against Germany. If we'd been Israel, we would have had a national day of prayer first. We would have asked God, what should we do? There can be no doubt that God told them at times to go to war. On some occasions they were told, defeat the enemy and exterminate every trace of them. This has been a great problem to some people about our Bible, the wars of extermination. God said, fight and utterly destroy. Study the Bible carefully, you discover this about such enemies. They were so morally corrupt that if they were allowed to survive, humanity would have been destroyed and it would have gone right down into the subsocial sewer. Only in those circumstances did God tell them to exterminate. Indeed, God once made his people wait hundreds and hundreds of years. He said, don't fight the Amorites because their iniquity is not yet full. And when Jericho was destroyed, archaeologists have discovered it was one of the most immoral cities there has ever been. And for this reason, God's people were told to destroy it so that they 
don't teach them the same abominable things. Some of their wars were disinfecting humanity. They were removing the tumour that could spread and destroy. So sometimes God told them to go to war. But secondly, at other times, God fought for them. God came into the battle to enable them to win. In the case of the Egyptians crossing the Red Sea, God said, stand still, the Lord will fight for you. And they saw an entire army wiped out. This is why God was given military titles throughout the Bible. One is the God of hosts, meaning armies. And when God was in the battle, they were sure to win. Remember how David says to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and spear. I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And what happened? He won the battle. Now, the third thing that comes out from the Old Testament is that sometimes God fought against Israel, bringing armies against them. Through prophet after prophet, God said, I have declared war against you this time. And why was this? Because Israel partook of the things for which they had wiped out other nations, and God has no favourites like that. He wiped out the Amorites for such things, then it's only fair to do the same to his own people doing the same things. Every time God went to war for or against his people, it was morally justified. Something so bad was happening. It was the only way to stop it. And now, fourthly, God did not approve of fighters. When King David said, Lord, I want to build you a wonderful temple, God said, no, you have shed too much blood and fought wars. David says, I couldn't help it. I am for peace, but the people around me are for war. And God said, David, you're too much of a fighter to build my house. So what is God saying? It's necessary to fight on occasions, but a man of war is not the man I want building a temple for me. As if God is saying, I must go to war sometimes, but that is not my will. I want people living in peace. And fifthly, in the Old Testament, God promises a day will come when war ceases. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And Psalm 46, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And God promised that he would do this through a prince of peace. 
Now, before leaving the Old Testament, let me add a couple of things. First, the Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus and he believed it to be God's word. He never criticised or corrected it. Secondly, the Old Testament God was Jesus' father. Turning now to the New Testament, at first glance, well, it seems to have a completely different atmosphere about it. I mean, Jesus refuses to fight. When he could have roused the crowd to support him, he never did. He told Peter to put his sword away and deliberately rode to Jerusalem on a donkey. You can't fight on a donkey. Israel was an occupied country and Jesus could have had an army, but he never did. And this looks like a change from the Old Testament. So why did Jesus refuse to fight? Some give answers which I think are superficial. He refused to fight because he knew that God was a God of love. Now, the implication is that the Old Testament is wrong. When it says that God told them to go to war, it's lying. Why then did Jesus refuse to fight? And the answer is found in the purpose of his first visit to earth. Jesus said, I have not come to establish an earthly kingdom right now. To Pilate, he said, if my servants were of this world, they would fight. If you come to begin an earthly kingdom, you will have to fight to establish and defend it. But Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God and heaven, and therefore he refused to fight. You see, we cannot establish a spiritual kingdom with physical force. Why did Christians not learn that? Why is church history covered in the blood of those tortured? We are called to a warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. We are not fighting flesh and blood. We are to fight the good fight of faith and we will be in that war until we die. But it's a spiritual warfare. Christians are not called to take up arms on God's behalf. But problems come because Christians live in a fallen, broken world. And we can't opt out of our earthly country. Part of the tension of Christian living is belonging to two kingdoms. We belong to the kingdom of God and of men. And here we must look more deeply at what the New Testament actually says. And what emerges is that Christians have a double duty. You see, we are responsible to the kingdom of heaven and our country. There are obligations for the kingdom of heaven. We are not to fight for that kingdom with force but love. But there is an earthly kingdom... And we have responsibilities. So listen to what Jesus said. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. This must 
take place. Now, I don't believe we will achieve peace by political diplomacy alone. Because I believe what Christ said to be true. There will always be wars and rumours of wars until Christ comes again, always. Do you know what? That relieves me from an anxiety about war and thinking that every war that comes will be the end of the world because it won't. But let me come to something Jesus said at the end of his life. Just before he ascended, the disciples asked him one last question. You've spoken of the kingdom of heaven, but when will you restore the earthly kingdom to Israel? And Jesus did not reply, don't think of earthly kingdoms as that's wrong thinking. He said, I'm not telling you when. It's not for you to know the time. So, do you get this? There is a place for earthly as well as heavenly kingdoms. And Christ is interested in the earthly as well as the heavenly kingdom. In the book of Acts, it's striking that again and again, Paul appealed to soldiers for protection. Jesus and Paul led many soldiers to faith and not once did they say to a soldier, if you become a Christian, you'll have to leave the army. Jesus called fishermen to leave their nets, but he never called a soldier to leave his sword. Paul was converting Caesar's special guards by the end of his life. Not once did he say, you must lay down your arms as a Christian. Listen to Paul's teaching. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. There is a place for the state to maintain peace by physical force. And therefore we are exhorted in the Bible to pay taxes and most was used to pay for defence, and still is today. Paul saw soldiers as part of the necessary machinery to keep the peace. And coming to the book of Revelation, we get a shock. On Christ's next visit to earth, his purpose will change. He came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven to men that first time and therefore he refused to fight. But the picture for his coming again is as a fighter. You see, the picture is not riding a donkey in peace, but riding a horse in war. Only by ignoring this part of the New Testament can this be our conclusion that Jesus is never a military figure. The difference lies between the first and the second comings. The first to save and the second to judge. The first to offer the peace of God and the second to bring peace on earth and bring it the only way it can be brought by conquering wicked men who destroy peace. And that's the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. I want now to come to our own position today. And what is that position to be? 
Well, there are three groups of Christians I meet, and I want to speak with love regarding their convictions. There are three attitudes among Christians regarding war. First, those who live in two compartments. They keep their heavenly and earthly kingdoms away from each other and they never touch. They have times of prayer and Bible reading, but told to fight, they go without a second thought and why? Because that has nothing to do with our heavenly kingdom. That's one attitude. We live in those two separate compartments. We fight any war whenever told to do so. That's a minority of Christians. They keep the two separate and we can't properly live like that. But I meet a second group for whom I have the deepest of respect. Christians must never engage in physical combat. I'm relieved that my nation allows conscientious objection. Some of these people have the toughest time of all during a war because they are unpopular with both sides. I respect what they say. A Christian must never fight under any circumstances, but I must be honest. I just can't find that in the whole Bible. I find it in parts, but not all of it. And here is the third position, and I believe it's the scriptural position. Every war must be judged on its own merit and morally justified. If I can't be morally justified in what I do, then I must not do that. I can't fight. Every war in Scripture that God ordered was against intolerable wickedness, not because some people were better than others, but because some were worse than others. When they went into the land of Canaan to exterminate people, God said these words to Israel. Do not think that I have told you to do this because of your righteousness, but because of their wickedness, I will drive them out before you. It's interesting to me regarding Britain's war leader, Winston Churchill. Before becoming the leader, he was offered a government defence position. He went to bed and a Bible was on the table by the side of the bed. And almost by accident, it fell open to the page I've just quoted. Do not think that for your righteousness, I am going to drive these people out before you. It is because of their wickedness that I am going to do it. Churchill had a warning from God. Winning against Germany would not be because we were better, but because at that time, they were worse. You can still listen online to the voices of war leaders and the voices of ordinary people caught up in terrible wars. One voice sticks in my mind, the voice of a man stumbling out of a concentration camp. He had been through beyond horror, but he knew this about the victory. 
It was not because we were better, but they were worse. You see, it's naive to say never fight and no troubles will come. The wickedness of men must be restrained. And in the last analysis, it may be the only way to cope with the morally wicked. But having said that, this third attitude calls us on occasions to say, this war is immoral and I can't take part. Martin Niemöller was a great German Christian. He suffered solitary confinement in a concentration camp as Hitler's personal prisoner. He was one of the few voices in Nazi Germany in the 1930s who said, this fighting is immoral. He had been a submarine commander, but he'd become a Christian. He said, I cannot justify what the leader of our nation is calling us to do. And he was in solitary confinement all during the war. I believe this is what the Bible calls us to do. And this is not easy because we don't always get the truth about conflicts and wars, do we? So our judgments can be impaired. Let's bring all this together, shall we? This is what a pacifist believes. Under no circumstances is war justified. How can we adopt the attitude that Jesus loves you, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to kill you? But was Jesus really a pacifist? A comprehensive study proves that he was not. In John 2, Jesus comes to the temple. The religious leaders had turned his father's house into a marketplace and Jesus overturned their tables. You see, he was not a strict pacifist. Jesus was sinless, so even in this situation, he did nothing wrong. And then... Over into Luke 22, Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure. He knows that the Jewish leaders are against him. He said to them, whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. When traveling, people of that day often carried a sword because of robbers. And Jesus warned them to be prepared to defend themselves when appropriate. John Calvin emphasized this. A Christian soldier should never use force to gain self-advantage, but use force out of love for your neighbour. You see, refusing to act while harm befalls a neighbour is not a virtue. It's a vice. Pacifists fail, to my mind, to make a clear distinction between a Christian's private and public views. In Romans, we find Paul's explanation of the role of the Christian and the state. This is in Romans 12 and 13. He lays out the responsibility of the Christian individual. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, if possible. Notice the qualifier. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
What is Paul saying? Well, there will be times when you cannot be at peace with all men. But when possible, as an individual, strive for peace. As individuals, we are not to seek personal vengeance. We need to be willing to suffer injustice as Christians, yes. And at that time, make an appeal to our God and to our state. But as members of the state... We are to work for justice against evil for the sake of others. We have a private responsibility and we have a public one. And therefore, my conclusion is that the pacifist position is unrealistic. Taken to its logical conclusion, it would do away with courts and police, leading to anarchy due to the nature of human hearts. Pacifism does not correctly separate our private duties from our public duties and the role of the state versus the role of the individual. The just war theory is the other dominant position. You heard of that, the just war. And this is held by many Christians today. War is never good, but sometimes it's necessary because sin is an ever-present reality to be dealt with. And we need to be realistic and not naive. When it comes to war, there is rarely pure good versus pure bad. I mean, we're all guilty sinners. Participation in war must be prompted by a just cause or a defensive cause. No war of unprovoked aggression can ever be justified. That said, think it through. Preemptive war can be legitimate in some circumstances. You see, if a government knows that their nation or another is about to become a victim, it can act to prevent the injustice before it takes place. And therefore, based on my studies and with great respect, a strict pacifist position is not only unreasonable, I think it's unbiblical. However, when war is considered, its legitimacy must be carefully evaluated. We may stand at a distance from the war and conflict in the Ukraine. We can consider in what ways we can help, however. We can certainly pray, can't we? Pray for the people of the Ukraine. The situation they now face is actually not a new one. The name Ukraine translates to borderland, and this nation has been viewed for centuries as just that, a bordering land waiting to be conquered. This nation and its people have seen struggle after struggle with Russia for centuries and over, 13,000 people have already died in the war that has been raging in the southwestern area of the Ukraine since 2014. Now, they are a resilient people, as we've been seeing. 
They live in a volatile area of the world that has seen regular war and upheaval. Yet Jesus walked the earth in a similar part of the world, plagued by oppression and a ruthless empire. And we can say to our God, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. We can ask that the people of the Ukraine may be safe, secure, and that they would know not only peace on earth, but true and unwavering peace. Again, I am conscious that we may be listening to this talk and this study from the Bible about war in a detached way. I'm conscious of that. I like getting the information, but there's nothing in it that's personal to me is how we may be viewing this. But maybe not. Maybe we know that the future is uncertain for us. Ordinary people in the Ukraine never expected their lives to be turned upside down. A man explained how he had made plans to secure his future. Build a bunker, hide my guns before the government takes them away, buy gold and stash it, stockpile food and water. He was ready for anything. Or was he? He sounded confident, but inside he was somewhat afraid. Why else would he go to all this trouble? If we look at his plan, the four things that concerned him are the same things that concern us. We want to be safe from disaster. Build a bunker. We want to be protected from danger and from evil men. Have a gun. We want to be secure financially. Buy gold. We want to have enough to eat and drink. Stockpile food and water. In the midst of all these threatening worldwide difficulties and dangers, I think that Jesus' advice to us is what we need. Do not be afraid, he said. Be at peace. We can't procure our own peace and the starting point for it is a peace with God which helps us on the inside of our lives, whatever is happening outside. It has to be the peace that Jesus gives and we can key off that. And we have the choice to calm down and trust God for the future or we can live in fear. Fear of the future requires action. So what can we do? Well, first, we can saturate our minds with Bible verses about God's care so that we have them available when we need peace, right? Keep this in mind. King David faced many battles, both from within as well as outside his nation. There were times when he was surrounded by enemies and they were coming to get him. And listen to what he said. I have stilled and quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
You've seen this among the refugees, haven't you? The child is lying on the mother's lap, but is winged, not anxious for milk. Its needs are satisfied and it's not fretting because it's being fed. Feed on God's word, digest it and speak it out. You see, true peace, not false hope, or the folly of believing there will be no further trials in this life is possible from the inside out. It comes from the settled conviction I am ultimately secure. Whatever is happening now, I'm ultimately secure as a child of God. Whatever happens in the short term, my hope is in him, my God. David chose to calm himself. We face the same choice. We can quiet down before God and calm our souls, or we can be miserable and afraid. This is what choosing peace is all about. And worship and praise God. Do this with other people whenever possible. We all need the support of one another. Tell God and one another, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise him, sing to him, if possible, out loud. It's what I loved to hear just the other day, people going to churches in the Ukraine and saying, we are going to praise him. We are going to worship him. He is our sovereign and in that is our security. Focus on God's greatness. May I take a moment more to apply this to ourselves? You see, we are by nature at war with God. We were by nature objects of wrath. We need to sign peace terms with God. He is holy and just and we must come to him on his terms and they are great terms. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. In the war of 1812, one of the famous battles in America, there was a battle called the Battle of New Orleans, which historians say was a needless battle. And that's because a peace treaty between Britain and America had already been signed 15 days before the battle took place. But they didn't hear the news of the peace agreement being signed until it was too late. 15 days went by. They fought every day. About 100 people died. 1,500 people died needlessly. When there was a peace agreement already intact and in place. And here's what God wants us to know. The war is over. The war between us and him. We best surrender. God did all the heavy lifting. And he's just saying sign on the dotted line. Put your name here. This war is over. As the eyes of the world turn towards the Ukraine, a war or conflict that's continuing, and the Russian aggression at their border and in the land, 
The first and best thing we can do is to work out what practical help we can give and we can also pray. Pray for the leaders of Ukraine to have wisdom in the coming days. Pray for wisdom, strength and courage for the people who are trying to find protection. Pray for civilians who have been displaced and for families who have been separated from each other as they have sought safety. Pray for those still seeking shelter that God would give them clarity and wisdom in making hasty decisions. Pray for Ukrainians to seek and find the peace and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ during this time. Pray for Ukrainian believers to find comfort, peace and strength in God and share the source of their strength with others. Pray for God to enable the churches to care for people. Let's pray now before we finish. And God bless you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in every situation, every dark moment, you are active and working among us. Even when things seem at their bleakest, we trust in your sovereignty and strength. We rest in the knowledge that you have the power to move in any and every situation. As we watch war unfold in Ukraine, we ask for your grace and peace to rule in the hearts and minds of all involved. Amen.